Hello, my name is Geraldine Goescola. I am Adjunct Associate Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore. Today, I will speak about the international legal framework that relates to satellite applications. The global satellite industry was worth 261 billion US dollars as of 2016 and represented nearly 77% of the global space economy. As of December 2016, there was a total of 1,459 operational satellites in Earth orbit, providing a multitude of services, including commercial and government telecommunications, Earth observation, scientific research, military surveillance, navigation, and meteorology. These satellites were operated by stakeholders in nearly 60 states, some as part of regional consortia. Global satellite industry revenues have increased at an average of 9.6% year-on-year for the past decade, a rate that is equal to three times that of the growth of the global economy. Civilian satellite applications can be divided into three main categories, telecommunications, earth observation, and navigation. And we will consider the international legal framework applicable to each in turn. First, telecommunications. A telecommunications satellite is an artificial satellite that relays and amplifies radio telecommunication signals via a transponder. Permanent communication links are established by transmitting radio frequency signals from a source on the ground to the satellite. The signal is received by the satellite, amplified, and then retransmitted to a receiving antenna in another location on the Earth. In this way, communication channels can be created between two points on the Earth thousands of kilometers apart. Moreover, the retransmitted signal from the satellite can be picked up by antennas anywhere in the coverage area of the satellite, an area known as the satellite's footprint. This area can be the size of an entire country or continent. Any device with an antenna can become a direct user of the satellite. However, the satellite requires a clear line of sight, meaning that it is necessary for the satellite to have unobstructed paths between both the transmitter and the receiver. Communication satellites rely on a wide range of radio and microwave frequencies. In order to minimize signal interference, frequency bands are allocated to specific satellites. Today, most communication satellites are active repeater satellites. This means that they amplify the received signal before retransmitting it to the ground receiver. Courier 1B, which was launched in 1960, was the world's first active repeater satellite. The significance of the commercial telecommunications industry can be seen from the fact that the second active direct relay telecommunications satellite, Telstar, was launched on the 10th of July 1962 from Cape Canaveral on board the world's first privately sponsored space launch. Operationally, there are two main types of satellite telecommunications, bi- or multi-directional point-to-point communications such as telephone connections, and unidirectional point-to-multipoint communications, such as radio and television broadcasting. Although a general international legal framework applies to both types, the second type is subject to greater regulation by international space law. Communication satellites are usually placed in an orbit called the geostationary orbit. This is an orbit situated approximately 35,786 kilometers above the equator and which follows the direction of the Earth's rotation. A satellite in this orbit has an orbital period equal to the rotational period of the Earth, such that to observers on the ground, it appears motionless and at a fixed position in the sky. And this is particularly useful for communication satellites since terrestrial antennae can remain pointed in the same direction. 
Moreover, three satellites strategically placed in the geostationary orbit would have a footprint almost over the entire globe, with the exception of the polar regions. Two other orbits in which telecommunication satellites are usually placed are the low and medium Earth orbits. Low Earth orbit refers to orbits of 2,000 kilometers above sea level or less, whereas medium Earth orbit is situated between low Earth orbit and the geostationary orbit. In particular, the low Earth orbit is popular for commercial satellite communications, since that orbit requires relatively small power input, but allows for large amounts of data processing. Today, satellite-based telecommunication systems are used in voice and data transmissions, such as the provision of broadband internet access, direct television broadcasting, and mobile telephony services. These services are an integral part of aviation, maritime, and road and rail services, as well as of particular strategic and military application. Beginning with the 2003 launch of the Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, landers on the surface of Mars have also used orbiting spacecraft to relay their data to Earth. Constellations of communication satellites have also been launched and are in service today, with two examples being the Iridium and Global Star systems. Approximately 40% of satellites in service today are telecommunication satellites. Global telecommunication services are coordinated through the International Telecommunications Union, or the ITU. The ITU is a specialized agency of the United Nations, with special charge over telecommunications and information communication technology. It is currently comprised of 193 member states, as well as more than 800 associates, sector members, and academia members. The primary purpose of the ITU is to promote cooperation and participation in the development of telecommunication services and associated technologies, so as to bring their benefits to people worldwide. The ITU is the agency with a mandate for the allocation of spectrum and allotment of frequencies and orbital positions. It also works to standardize telecommunication practices and to eliminate harmful interference with telecommunications practices. The ITU legal regime comprises three instruments binding on its members, its constitution, the ITU convention, and the radio regulations. These instruments contain the main principles and specific regulations in relation to, first, frequency spectrum allocations to different categories of radio communication services, secondly, rights and obligations of member administrations in obtaining access to the spectrum and orbit resources, and thirdly, the international recognition of these rights by recording frequency assignments and, as appropriate, other relevant information. The ITU, therefore, grants international recognition of members' rights, as well as protection of those rights and procedures to detect and eliminate harmful interference with registered assignments. In this manner, the ITU promotes a rational, efficient and equitable use of the radio frequency spectrum and of orbital positions, which are limited, though undepletable, natural resources. In so doing, the ITU gives special consideration to the future use of these resources by developing countries, as well as the special geographical situation of particular countries, in line with Articles 44 and 45 of its Constitution. The coordination and management of frequencies is performed by the ITU through the implementation of the radio regulations. Article 5 of the Radio Regulations provides for the allocation structure of the ITU. Allocation refers to the reservation of certain frequency bands to certain categories of services. This allows for the planning and implementation of radio telecommunication service. The current approach is based on a block allocation methodology, 
with the regulated frequency band of between 8.3 kHz to 3,000 GHz segmented into smaller bands and allocated to over 40 defined radio communication services. These services are divided into primary or secondary services. Priority is given to primary services so that secondary services do not cause harmful interference to or claim protection from the former. The ITU also organizes the world into three main ITU regions. Region 1 primarily comprises Europe, Africa, and the territory of Russia. Region 2 comprises the Americas. And Region 3 comprises Asia, Australia, and the Pacific, with the exception of Russian territory. Each region may follow different approaches in the allocation of frequencies, since differences of use in one region has no harmful impact in another region. Two major mechanisms were devised in order to ensure efficient use and equitable access to the radio frequency spectrum. The first was an allotment plan for both fixed and broadcasting satellite services. The second mechanism involves advanced publication, coordination and notification requirements in the use of satellite networks. Once it is clear that, following the extended coordination process, a newly proposed system would pose no threat or risk of harmful interference with existing systems, the frequency in question would be assigned by way of a notification request included in the ITU Master International Frequency Register. This register records the assignments notified by states in compliance with the coordination procedure and constitutes a permanent but continuously updated depository of authorized frequencies for existing systems. Over the years, there have been some interesting challenges and developments in the ITU regime. The first relates to the principle that radio frequencies should be used rationally, efficiently, and economically, as required by Article 44, Paragraph 2 of the ITU Constitution. For many years, this principle was implemented through the first-come, first-served prioritization of potential competing requests for frequency usage. This principle was initially considered fair since most satellite operating states were approximately of the same level of technological advancement, and since the geostationary orbit was mostly unfilled. However, as more and more satellites were launched and the lesser developed states became more interested in satellite operations, this first-come, first-served principle came under direct fire. In particular, there was great concern that the geostationary orbit, as well as most beneficial slots and frequencies, would be occupied before the lesser developed states would have the financial and technological capability to launch a satellite. This concern was first addressed in the 1973 Plenipotentiary Conference, where it was decided that equitable access should be taken into a consideration in allocating orbital slots and frequencies. In 1977, a compromise was struck, applying a system of a priori planning it to apply in Regions 1 and 3, that is, with the exception of the Americas. The a priori plans involve the reservation of a few satellite slots and frequency for, for each state, regardless of whether that state was in a position to immediately use those slots and frequencies. Moreover, extra frequency bands have recently been allocated for space communications as opposed to terrestrial communications. Another interesting challenge that arose related to the considerable time frame required for the ITU coordination process. The advanced publication, coordination and notification requirements in place meant that official requests for the reservation of frequencies and orbital slots could take place anywhere between two and seven years prior to the satellite system being brought in use. 
As a consequence, many states filed such requests well before the satellite system was developed and built, so that the reservation for the necessary frequencies and slots could have priority. In turn, this resulted in many requests made to the ITU for systems that ultimately did not come to fruition. Over time, this became known as the paper satellite problem. In recent years, the ITU has required proof of satellite manufacture or launch contracts, as well as the deposit of administrative costs, as a means of battling this problem. A third challenge that arose is the Tonga Sat case. In 1987, the King of Tonga was convinced by a private entrepreneur to make use of the a priori planning regime in order to claim orbital positions reserved for Tonga and other nations in the region. The entrepreneur was allowed to establish and operate a Tongan company called TongaSat, which required no investment from the Tongan government, but which agreed to contribute half of its net income to the kingdom. Tonga, on behalf of TongaSat, applied for 16 slots from the ITU. However, there were no plans to manufacture or launch any satellites to fill those 16 slots. Instead, TongaSat's intent was to sell or lease the slots for profit. This was in violation of the practice at the ITU, which allowed the registration of frequencies and slots by states only for their own use, actual or intended. Six member states of the ITU complained. Now, this created an interesting problem because the ITU legal framework contained no provisions either expressly prohibiting Tonga's actions or expressly permitting that the a priori system uh, was used in such a manner. Nonetheless, in the face of opposition, Tonga said reduces requests from 16 to 6 slots, which the ITU assigned to it in March of 1991. Tonga Sat has, to date, successfully licensed four of these slots with options on two more. It has also been assigned a seventh slot, and today holds nine geostationary orbital positions, as well as a number of non-geostationary or orbital slots. Satellites in these orbital positions can connect Asia with the west coast of North America, a coverage that includes nearly 3.5 billion people and is considered one of the most important telecommunications traffic streams in the world. A related issue is that of states auctioning ITU-assigned orbital slots and frequencies to commercial operators. Nothing in international law prevents sovereign states from deciding the manner in which they would distribute these slots and frequencies. However, since requests by states to the ITU for the allotment of these slots should be made only for specific planned satellites, there was good argument that these auction slots would be invalid, since they were granted prior to their assignment to a specific satellite system. As mentioned earlier, above and beyond the ITU framework, additional rules apply to unidirectional point-to-multipoint communications such as radio and television broadcasting. We now turn to those services. Satellite television services accounted for some 97.7 billion US dollars of consumer services revenue in 2016. There are nearly 220 million satellite pay TV subscribers worldwide, and nearly twice as many free-to-air satellite TV households globally. Before direct broadcasting was commercialized to such great success, however, the debate was of a more political nature. The motion up for debate was whether international law provides for a freedom to impart information, or whether broadcasting requires the prior consent from the state on whose territory the broadcast would take place. The concerns in relation to direct broadcasting can be seen in the provisions of the 1936 International Convention on the Use of Broadcasting in the Cause of Peace, a treaty that clearly predated the space era. 
This convention prohibited broadcasting where it was intended to incite the population of any territory to acts incompatible with an internal order or the security of the contracting state. On the 21st of May 1974, the Convention relating to the distribution of program-carrying signals transmitted by satellite was concluded in Brussels. The Brussels Convention did not address the issue of prior consent, but mainly focused on issues such as the protection of copyright in the context of retransmissions. It reflected the more liberal view that supported the freedom to impart information, with negotiating states firmly rejecting any notion of the principle of prior consent. Concerns about potential propaganda and potential risks of cultural imperialism persisted and led to negotiations in the United Nations General Assembly on the subject. On the 10th of December 1982, the UN General Assembly adopted the principles on direct television broadcasting by satellite. These principles were the result of a compromise between two diametrically opposite views espoused by the members of the United Nations. Reflecting both the freedom to impart and receive information, as well as the sovereign rights of the state to be free from intervention in its internal affairs. Now, this can be seen in Principles 1 and 2, which provided that broadcasting activities should promote free dissemination and mutual exchange of information and knowledge, while ensuring respect for cultural integrity. This compromise approach, unfortunately, did not resolve the issue of whether prior consent was necessary from the state on whose territory the broadcasting would take place. Principle 10, for example, provided that both broadcasting and receiving states should enter into consultations with each other upon request. However, there was no clarification as to whether this duty to consult need result in any sort of consent by the receiving state. Further, many states interpreted Principle 10 to mean that states were allowed to block broadcasting on its territory. The resolution, therefore, was adopted in the General Assembly with 107 states in favour, but with 13 against and 17 abstentions. Of course, as a resolution of the General Assembly, these principles are not in and of themselves binding, but the heated debate and the votes against it may militate against its being evidence of custom. The second category of satellite applications is Earth observation through remote sensing. Remote sensing allows the collection and analysis of data about an object without the instrument used to collect the data being in contact with that object. So for example, if I were to take a photograph of a flower with a camera, and on that photograph I were to observe that the flower had a certain number of petals and stamen, which appear to be of different colours, that would be remote sensing. When we speak of remote sensing in terms of Earth science, the observed object is the Earth. Remote sensing in this case, or Earth observation to be more precise, is therefore a means by which to observe and study the Earth, its oceans, land masses, atmosphere and planetary dynamics from outer space. Four elements are essential to remote sensing or Earth observation. The target object to be observed, the sensor that is to observe the object, the platform on which that sensor is held, and the information that is obtained from the observation data. Earth observation satellites are used in particular in the agriculture industry, as well as in disaster management, resource management, and meteorology. 21% of satellites in service today are Earth observation satellites. The global Earth observation industry is worth approximately 720 million US dollars annually. Two international legal instruments are directly pertinent to the field of Earth observation. The principles relating to remote sensing of the Earth from outer space, a resolution of the General Assembly which was adopted by consensus on the 3rd of December 1986, 
or also known as the Remote Sensing Principles, and the International Charter on Cooperation to achieve the coordinated use of space facilities in the event of natural or technological disasters, also known as the International Disaster Charter. Both these instruments are not binding on states, but provide evidence of practice in this field. Now, ever since it became possible to send cameras into outer space, states' opinions on the subject have been divided. Some states, disliking the idea of a peeping Tom overhead, took the view that the acquisition and dissemination of information about their territory and natural resources violated their sovereignty, and that such activities would require prior consent from the sent state. Other states, in particular those with the Earth observation capability, were of the opinion that such acquisition and dissemination of information was consistent with the freedom of the exploration and use of outer space, and contributed to advances that were for the benefit of all humanity. After protracted negotiations at the United Nations, the General Assembly adopted the remote sensing principles by consensus. The text of the principles reflect a compromise between these two positions through the unequivocal removal of any limitations on the dissemination of data and information, in return for certain advantages granted to states without access to outer space or Earth observation technologies. It is important to note here, however, that the remote sensing principles apply only to natural resource management, land use, and environmental protection. This means, therefore, that military applications of Earth observation are excluded from the application of the principles. Moreover, it is unclear whether dual-use satellites, such as the European Global Monitoring for Environment and Security Program, which is now known as the Copernicus Program, would fall within the ambit of the remote sensing principles. Moreover, civilian Earth observation applications, other than for natural resource management, land use, and the protection of the environment, are also excluded from the application of the principles, unless argument could be made that they fall within one of the three categories of uses referred to in the principles. Another point of note is that the remote sensing principles apply both to the operation of space-based satellite systems, as well as the collection of primary data, and the terrestrial processing and dissemination of data and other products. The main gist of the remote sensing principles is that Earth observation does not violate the territorial sovereignty of the sense state. Principle 4 provides for the fundamental freedom of remote sensing from outer space establishing that there is no need for prior consent, notification, or consultation before engaging in Earth observation, and that sense states have no veto rights on the sensing of their territories. Moreover, Principle 4 also establishes that areas cannot be exempt from observation based on geographic considerations. The rights of the sense state, however, are also acknowledged, with a stipulation that Earth observation activities shall be conducted on the basis of respect for the principles of state sovereignty and the sovereignty of people over their own wealth and natural resources. Significantly, Principle 4 also provides that Earth observation activities shall not be conducted in a manner detrimental to the legitimate rights and interests of the sense state. The issue of access to data is dealt with in Principle 12, which provides that once primary and processed data concerning the territory under its jurisdiction are produced, the sense state shall have access to them on a non-discriminatory basis and on reasonable cost terms. Principle 12, therefore, obliquely implies that sense states do not have a right to require prior consent before the dissemination of data over their territories. Further, although sense states are guaranteed access to such data, it is on a non-discriminatory basis and for a price. 
Although that price must be on reasonable cost terms, there is no clarification as to whether the term refers to the cost of obtaining the data or to the reasonable market price that the market will bear, only a stipulation that the needs and interests of developing countries should be considered. Another important point of note is that Principle 12 does not guarantee the availability of data to the sense state, only that if such data were available, the sense state shall have access to it on the same terms as other states. The International Disaster Charter, on the other hand, is an acknowledgement of the utility of Earth observation technology and information in early warning, disaster mitigation and disaster management. Membership of the Charter comprises 16 agencies and associated operators. The Charter has two main objectives. First, to supply data during periods of crisis to states and communities whose populations, activities or property are exposed to an imminent risk or who already are victims of natural or technological disasters. And secondly, to participate in the organisation of emergency assistance or reconstruction or subsequent operations by means of such data and of the information and services resulting from the exploitation of space facilities. The Charter is activated through one of several mechanisms. These include direct activation by a predefined list of authorised users, which can submit a request for a disaster occurring in their state or on behalf of users from a non-member country. Authorised users include civil protection agencies and governmental relief organisations. The Charter also provides support to agencies of the United Nations and can respond to requests made by the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs and the UN Institute for Training and Research UNITAR. The number of partners with access to activation of the Charter is also being increased, with agreements made, for example, with Sentinel Asia, which is the regional co collaboration for 31 Asia-Pacific countries, and the Group on the Earth Observation. Article 4 of the Charter provides that the Secretary is responsible for the implementation of the Charter. Once notified of a crisis, the Secretary plans the appropriate response and identifies the parties that are best placed to assist based on their capabilities and the situation at hand. Article 4, paragraph 2 of the Charter also provides for scenario writing, allowing advanced planning on the part of the partners so as to minimise the response time necessary to deploy the most appropriate assistance. The parties to the International Disaster Charter volunteer their cooperation and cover the costs of their participation in line with Article 5 of the Charter. There are three off-topics relating to Earth observation that should be addressed. First, the issues raised by the gathering of very high-resolution Earth observation data. Secondly, the increasing number of Earth observation missions carried out by a public-private partnership. And thirdly, the framework applicable to data processing and data policies. Now, camera technology has come a long way from the wooden box camera of 1826. Advances in digital imaging, computing power and small satellite avionics mean that high-resolution imagery is becoming increasingly affordable and mainstream. The global security situation, together with increasing consumer demand, has created increased market opportunities for high-resolution, dual-use satellites. Now, high-resolution imagery, that is imagery of 10-metre resolution or better, and very high-resolution imagery of 1-metre resolution or better, are now of great strategic and commercial importance. The availability of such high-resolution data is accompanied by serious concerns of national security and privacy. To date, there is scant international regulation on such imagery. 
However, some states have legislated on the collection and dissemination of high-resolution data. For example, in 1997, the United States government introduced the National Defense Authorization Act, which prohibits licensees from disseminating imagery of Israel that is more detailed than what is available from foreign commercial sources. The 2005 Canadian Remote Sensing Space Systems Act also provides for the government's power to exercise effective supervision and control over Earth observation systems operated by its licensees, including the right of the government to obtain priority access to data for the purpose of international relations and national defense interests. In 2007, Germany promulgated the German Act on Satellite Data Security, which came into force on the 1st of December that year. The Act empowers the German government to control the collection and dissemination of high-resolution satellite data, so as to reduce any threat to national security and the security of other states. Before a distributor complies with a request for very high-resolution data, a sensitivity check must be undertaken, which considers factors such as the content of the data, the location, the purchasing entity, and the country of destination of the data. This sensitivity check is performed first by the data distributor and then on a case-by-case -case basis by the German Federal Office of Economics and Export Control. The Act also provides that the German government is to be given priority access to data in the event of an emergency, such as a threat to national security. Violations of the Act are sanctioned by fines of up to half a million euros. India's remote sensing data policy of 2001 takes the same approach as the German Act on Satellite Data Security, similarly providing for licensing and sensitivity checks before very high-resolution data can be disseminated. China and Japan have also promulgated policies to exercise control over the distribution and use of high-resolution imagery from Earth observation satellites. The second issue of note in relation to Earth observation satellites is the fact that they are increasingly manufactured and operated under a public-private partnership. Examples of this include the RapidEye constellation, a system of five optical Earth observation satellites used for agriculture and mapping, which has since been sold to the private sector, and the TerraSAR-X high-resolution satellite, which was financed jointly by the German Space Agency and EADS Astrium. The public-private partnership requires a balance between commercial profitability and the return of profits paid for by the public purse. In principle, the fact that private entities are involved in the operation of Earth observation satellites should not detract from the international obligations relating to those satellites, especially since the state responsible for the private entity in question is obliged, under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, to authorize and continuously supervise the activities of the private entity. In practice, however, it remains to be seen if every commercial satellite operator will be willing to comply with the principles relating to the collection and dissemination of Earth observation data, especially where profit or return on investment may be at risk. The last category of note relates to data policy. Although there is increasing widespread demand for Earth observation data, international regulation has not kept up with such demand. This means that the existing international law framework does not adequately deal with issues such as the access to, distribution of, and use of Earth observation satellite data. This means that data distribution and use is governed by a patchwork of various national legislation and independent operator policies. In respect of access to data, there is no consistent state practice. The United States, for example, practices shutter control, 
over imaging satellites, meaning that the government has the power to shut down the operation of a satellite in order to protect national security and foreign policy interests. However, the United States also allows open access, allowing users to access data freely or at marginal costs, regardless of the identity of the end user or the purpose for which the data is being used. Other states, such as Canada and the member states of the European Space Agency, practice a more regulated access approach, distinguishing between categories of users and types of data, with cost recovery pricing. Now, an example of this approach is the data policy of Envisat, which distinguishes between data for research and application development use and data meant for operational and commercial use. This may change with the European Copernicus program coming online, where although a, de a definitive data policy has yet to be concluded, there is certain expectation that there will be data available free of charge. The European Union's INSPIRE directive also aims to establish a common infrastructure for the distribution and use of spatial information, and may go a long way towards harmonizing data policy, at least within the European Union. Navigation services comprise the third category of satellite applications. 7% of the functioning satellites in Earth orbit are dedicated navigation satellites. Global Navigation Satellite Systems, or GNSS, are space-based systems that provide position, navigation, and timing services on a global scale. The space segment consists of a constellation of satellites, usually placed in medium Earth orbit, that is, between 2,000 and approximately 35,000 kilometers altitude. These navigation satellites transmit radio signals to receivers to determine their location by computing the difference between the time the signal is sent and the time it is received. For that purpose, navigational satellites carry extremely precise atomic clocks. Information about the time is placed into the data signals broadcast by the satellite so that the receiver can continuously determine the time at which the signal was broadcast. The signals also contain data, which a receiver uses to compute the location of the satellite and to make adjustments to ensure accurate positioning. With signals from three satellites, the receiver can compute its position in three dimensions. With signals from four satellites, the receiver can compute its placement on the Earth in terms of latitude, longitude and altitude, as well as the time it was at that location. Today, many vehicles and portable personal devices, such as mobile telephones, make use of global navigation systems. Most are connected to the Global Positioning System, or GPS, of the United States. There are also other global navigation satellite systems, such as the European Galileo system, the Chinese Beidou Compass system, and the Russian Federation's GLONASS system. Other future satellite navigation systems include the Indian Regional Navigation Satellite System and the Japanese Quasi-Zenith satellite system. These systems function through the operation of a constellation of navigation satellites, together with their receivers on the ground. Now, core constellation systems may not meet the necessary performance requirements for high-precision applications, such as docking maneuvers and shipping, or aircraft precision approaches. Augmentation systems have therefore been established in order to provide higher accuracy, integrity, and reliability. For example, the United States has developed the Wide Area Augmentation System, consisting of a space segment of geostationary orbits and a ground segment in order to ensure that aircraft can rely on GPS throughout all flight phases. Similar systems are in place for other global navigation satellite systems. For example, the Russian System for Differential Corrections and Monitoring will boost the GLONASS system, 
for the European Geostationary Navigation Overlay Service, or EGNOS, will augment signals from Europe's Galileo system. The growing use of global navigation satellite systems means that interoperability and compatibility between systems is crucial. Interoperability refers to the ability to combine services from different systems. This improves both the end-user utility and the overall capability of the system. Compatibility refers to the ability of the global navigation satellite systems to be used independently and collectively, without technical interference, and also without affecting national interests and security. The requirements of interoperability and compatibility has led to the creation of an International Committee on GNSS by the United Nations General Assembly on the 14th of December 2006. The committee is an informal body intended to enhance cooperation in space-based position, navigation and timing services, particularly for the benefit of developing countries. The committee is mandated to promote interoperability, compatibility and transparency between the various providers of navigation satellite systems. All GNSS service providers or users are eligible to participate in the committee. Global navigation satellite service providers may join the committee's providers forum. The forum works to coordinate and cooperate in the improvement of overall GNSS service provision between states currently operating such systems, as well as states intending to do so in the future. There have also been some bilateral agreements between states that operate core GNSS constellations, in particular on the issues of interoperability and compatibility. For example, the United States has concluded bilateral arrangements with Australia, China, Europe, India, Japan and Russia in order to encourage coordination on GNSS services. The European Union and its member states have also concluded agreements with China, Israel, India, Ukraine, Morocco, Korea, Norway and Switzerland, encouraging not only coordination for interoperability and compatibility, but also scientific research and trade. On the 26th of June 2004, the European Union and the United States signed a bilateral agreement establishing cooperation between GPS and Galileo. The space component of a global navigation satellite system falls under the legal framework of international space law. Therefore, the obligations under the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, such as the international responsibility of states to authorize and continuously supervise the activity and the liability of launching states for a damaged cause, apply to the space segment of the system. Moreover, the framework under the auspices of the International Telecommunications Union in relation to the allocation and assignment of frequencies on a global radio spectrum, as well as the assignments of satellite orbits, also applies to the space segment. Specifically, as regards global navigation satellite systems, the International Telecommunications Union has been working towards better management and coordination of the radio frequency bands used by the radio navigation satellite services. New allocations in various frequency bands have been agreed upon in order to support the growth of the satellite navigation sector, in particular with the development of systems such as Galileo. GNSS services also involve various intellectual property issues, such as copyright protection of software and databases. In 2012, the seriousness of GNSS intellectual property issues became apparent when Plowshare Innovations, a subsidiary of the United Kingdom Defense Ministry, requested royalties from United States companies, in reliance on a patent that Plowshare had obtained from a European Patent Office. The patent related to aspects of modulation signals that allowed the interoperability between the open signals of GPS and Galileo. 
the research relating to the patent had been done through a joint task force on the basis of a cooperation agreement between the European Union and the United States. The royalties requested on the basis of the patent raised severe concerns among the United States and member states of the European Union that such patents would be of grave threat to the use of free GNSS signals. Finally, in 2013, the United Kingdom and the United States issued a joint statement agreeing to ensure the perpetual free and open availability of the civil GPS signal worldwide. Another interesting issue relates to liability in the case of signal disruption or loss. Satellite signals are vulnerable to disruption and loss through a host of possible factors, including natural factors such as increased solar activity, unintended artificial factors such as the degradation of the space segment due to national emergencies or the lack of funds, and intended artificial factors such as spoofing, which is the fraudulent or malicious sending of signals from an unknown source disguised as a legitimate source. At present, there are no uniform international rules on GNSS-related operations in these cases, despite efforts undertaken by the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, and the International Institute for the Unification of Private Law, UNIDUA. Civil and criminal penalties may, however, be instituted through domestic proceedings on an ad hoc basis. Moreover, in the case of international commercial aviation, the sector-specific framework for liability under the 1929 Convention for the Unification of Certain Rules Relating to International Transportation by Air, also known as the Warsaw Convention, and the 1952 Rome Convention on Damage Caused by Foreign Aircraft to Third Parties on the Surface, applied. In the case of maritime navigation, the International Maritime Organization has enunciated its policy and requirements for GNSS usage, recommending harmonization of augmentation practices, cost recovery and allocation methods, and performance standards for GNSS equipment on board all passenger ships. The ubiquity of satellite applications in our everyday lives is such that few, if any, pause to think of the satellites in orbit that make these applications possible. From the navigational systems in our cars, to the broadband internet access that allows this lecture to be broadcast, to the mobile telephones in our hands, one thing is clear. Satellites and satellite applications have become integral parts of human society and the global economy. It is therefore of some concern that there is no international legal framework that regulates satellite applications. The international efforts surrounding applications of satellites all tend to be informal, non-binding, or a melange of uncoordinated bilateral agreements. It may be useful to re-evaluate the situation going forward, as dependency on satellite application in our daily lives increases, together with the growing possibility that things could go wrong. Thank you.